if you've got your story Bibles, open those up, and we're going to uh, dig into that uh, today. Or if you've got your Bibles from uh, the Rose uh, as well, we're going to be in Judges chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 10. To get you all uh, up to speed, we are working through the story together at a, as a church at all of our campuses, and we're reading through 31 of the most powerful, influential stories of Scripture, this one long story from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end. And we're in chapter 8, so you can uh, jump right in. It's never too late to start. And so uh, we want to encourage you uh, to grab one of these, if you haven't already, back at the Welcome Center. Uh, And it just reads like one continuous story. It's a beautiful thing, and it'll hop from book to book, so don't be confused about that. But I pray that this hour on Sunday morning is not the only time that that's getting cracked open, that your Bible is getting weathered and and worn and, and, and used. And so uh, if you want to turn to Judges chapter 2, we're going to be on page uh, 103 So to start. So to get us all caught up, you know, we've been following the story of God's people, the Israelites, as they've been rescued out of Egypt. And kind of the central story, the central theme uh, of, of our story so far is this idea of covenant, this idea of covenant, this, this promise, this vision that God gave to his people, the Israelites, to say, you are going to be my model people. You are going to be a role model, an example to all the other nations around you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to provide for you. And you're going to be a light to the nations so that when other nations look at you, they'll say, I want what Israel has. I want the kind of relationship that they have with their God. Yet if there's anything that we've learned from the story of how the Israelites relate to God, we've learned this. Vision leaks. Everybody say, vision leaks. Meaning, after everything that God has done, no matter how many times God makes the same promises over and over, no matter how many times he provides, after all the miracles that God's done, sooner or later, God's people forget They act and they live as if none of those things that God did for the last couple hundred years ever happened. The vision of God's goodness soon disappears. And this is where we pick up the story today. If you remember where we left off, where uh, Andy left us off last week, the Israelites had fought the battle of Jericho and they are now ready to enter in to the promised land. And they're there. They finally arrived. After, after all these years of traveling through the desert, they're finally in the promised land, and so everything is just great and hunky-dory, right? Well, maybe not so much, right? They're still complaining. As we pick up the story today, they have lost the vision. They've lost the story. And so we start reading on page 103. So this is after the time of Joshua. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, meaning they'd passed away, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, which they served other gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them doesn't exactly sound like a light to the nations, does it? They sold out. They sold out on their God. Think about it. They've been traveling through the desert for 40 years. Think about it this way. It's like you, let's say you're going to go to Disneyland 
and it takes you 25 hours to drive there. And so you pack up the car, you throw the kids in the back, and it takes you days and days and days to get to Disneyland. And you finally get there, and you pull in the parking lot, and you say, look, kids, we're finally here. We made it to the promised land. We made it to Disneyland. And you turn and you look at your kids and they go, eh, I think I'd rather go over here and play in this mud puddle. And I think in some strange way, maybe that's how God's feeling. I've been your father for four or five hundred years. I've carried you through as, as people. And now when we finally get there, you say, eh, I've seen better. Or for the Israelites, I'm going to go worship a golden calf instead of the God of the universe. And I wonder if that's kind of what God's feeling and maybe he's asking himself, will I ever be enough for you? That's a good question to ask ourselves this morning as well. When we base our circumstances on our happiness, folks, it's never going to be enough. And I I don't know about you, but it it seems to me that the longer that you and I choose to spend our, our lives discontent all the time, the longer we live with sort of this unsettledness in our lives, the longer we run around searching and, and, and find that nothing is ever enough, if you live that way long enough, sooner or later, at some point, you're going to realize, I hope, that maybe the answer you're looking for is not out there based in the circumstances of what happens to you. And instead, the answer is in here with what God wants to do in you. And if we could grasp that truth... <laughs> things would go a lot better for us. And if the Israelites would have grasped that truth, this book would be a whole lot shorter because <laughs> they would have gone, Egypt, promised land. Trust God, trust God, trust God, boom, we're there. But that's not how the story goes because vision leaks. Vision leaks. And it's almost like we struggle with the same thing. God pours his promises into us again and again and again. And a lot of times, if we don't live it out, if we don't apply it to our lives, well, it just falls right out the bottom. So out from the prop room uh, this morning, I think it's something like this. God comes along to us and he says, I love you. I'm here for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm everything that you need. I'll always be there for you. And he pours his life into ours. He gives us everything. <laughs> he gave us his life. And we're riding high, and you have those moments in your life when you're feeling really close to God, and you say, I'm all filled up. And then over time, we start to doubt, and we start to wonder, just like the Israelites. And sooner rather than later, the holes start to form. And out from the bottom, God's promises go in, and they go right out the bottom. And we were feeling this high and we were feeling filled up. And then sooner rather than later, our cup runs dry. And it's empty. And it's almost like God comes along and he says, I love you. But then we run from person to person trying to find affirmation. God says, you can trust me. But then we spend every day doubting if he cares. God says, I am your true joy. I am deeper than happiness. But we continue to put our hope in circumstances. God says, I'm always going to provide for you. 
But then we live our lives worrying and stressed out all the time as if that's supposed to be normal in the Christian life. And it's not. Isn't it incredible, especially as followers of Jesus here today, that we can be surrounded by God's promises, that we can be surrounded by his word? I'm guessing there's some of you that have five, six, seven of these sitting on your shelf at home, collecting dust. When most of the people in this world would kill for a page. Because it's God's word. It's alive. And I wonder how we can be surrounded by God's word and his promises and yet at times remain so utterly unaffected by it. I think that God wants us to be reservoirs. He wants to fill us up to overflowing so we can spill out into the world around us. Not just be a a, a cup with a hole in the bottom where God pours his promises in and we say, well, that's great for everybody else, but not for me. It never sticks. It never soaks in. You're never immersed in God's word. That's one of the main reasons why we're reading the story. And I know you've heard me say this before and I'll say it again, but the goal of reading the story is not to get through the Bible. It's to let the Bible get through you. To let it change you. To take God up on his promises and actually believe that when we apply his word to our lives, things might actually change. That God really wants to transform you. But the truth is, vision leaks. It falls right out the bottom. And just like the Israelites in the time of the judges, judges, it's easy for us to grow complacent as well. And I just want to get really practical with you for a second, because some of you might be wondering, what is this vision leaking stuff? I think about sometimes in our life groups. I know a lot of you are in groups or have been in groups, uh, small groups here at, at church. And one of the things I think that happens is we start out filled up God pours into us as a leader or as a group and things are going great and we're excited to read God's word and and we're there for one another and we're praying for each other. But then vision starts to leak. And we think that life groups are about showing up and filling in the blanks instead of letting God change your heart. We think it's about going and I'm going to recite all my biblical knowledge for everyone in my group. But then our lives don't look any different because of it. Vision leaks. Or maybe for some of you, the place where vision is leaking in your life is with weekly worship. I mean, we love it that you're here every week and we want to encourage that. But sometimes the other priorities of life on the weekend can kind of creep in. And all of a sudden, worship goes from a, we we let that guilt seep in and worship goes from a get to to a got to. This incredible experience, do you know what we just did here this morning? We worshiped the God of the universe. You're not just sitting in some random gym going through the motions. Not everybody in the world gets to do this. And yet we take it for granted so often. And maybe that's where vision has leaked for you and it's moved from a joy to a duty or an obligation. There is a reason that so often we go back to our mission and we go back to our vision. And I know some of you are thinking, John, we do this so much, I'm just sick of it. Well, good. That means we're doing it enough. So we're going to throw our our vision as Lutheran Church of Hope here up on the board. This is who God has called us to be, just like he called the Israelites to the promised land. So we're not just going to read it together. We're going to do some actions with it. And I know some of you are probably rolling your eyes and saying, John, I didn't come here this morning to make a fool out of myself. Well, you know what? 
all of us are going to make fools of ourselves. So you're in the right place, okay? So what we're going to do, I just want you to repeat after me, and you're going to do the actions, and it's okay if you feel silly, because everybody else is going to look silly too, okay? So ready? Spirited! Spirited. Oh, let's try it again. Spirited! Spirited! Growing! Growing. Make sure you do both, deep and wide, right? Okay, growing! Growing. Christ-centered. One more time. Spirited! Spirited. Growing! Growing. (laughs) Christ-centered! Some of you are going, ah! (laughs) Right? Okay, now let's do it together and let's read the whole thing with the actions. God's vision for us as a church is to be a spirited, growing, Christ-centered community filled with hope. Filled with hope. That's who God has called us to be as a church. So I'll say, get it. You say, got it. Get it? Good. And don't forget it. Because that's what happens to the Israelites. And as we pick up our story today, that's what's happened as we pick it up in chapter 8. But the good news for us is that in the story of the Israelites and the judges is that vision leaks, but God refills. Vision leaks, but God refills. And that's where we pick up our story today. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 16. And if you're in the story Bible, we're on page 104 is where we're going to pick it up today. So here's what happens. God says, I haven't given up on you. And so I'm going to raise up these judges. I'm going to raise up these leaders that are going to come and they're going to save you. In fact, we have a picture of the 12 judges that God raised up. Um, Are you sure? I don't think that's it. Let's try the next one. These are the judges that God raised. No, that's not true either. Maybe we have one more. There we go. Those are the judges that God has raised up. So when we get to this point in the story, you've got to realize we're not talking about judges just sitting in robes. The judges that God's raised up, some were warriors, some were more political figures, some were more behind the scenes, but they had one role, and that was to call God's people back to himself, to rescue them. And so let's read what happens, kind of the middle of page 104 if you're in the story. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So God had grace on them. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so what we see is this ugly cycle over and over again. The people fall into sin and rebel. God raises up a judge. The judge rescues them. Things are good. The people rebel again. They're in bondage again. They need to be rescued. God sends another judge, and around and around and around we go. It's this ugly, ugly cycle. Almost for 325 years and 12 judges later, nothing's changed. It's almost like God's people have the worst case of short-term memory ever. And all they can think about is their current troubles, and they can't remember the entire history of God's victories for them. It reminds me a lot of certain football fans from Iowa City. You know what I'm talking about? We get so focused on our current struggles with this Hawkeye football team that we forget the entire past that we've been to 10 bowl games in the last 10 years. Hawkeye fans, can I get an amen? Amen. We struggle with that. Oh, the entire crowd is Hawkeye fans today. (laughs) 
this is wonderful. I'm just going to bask in this. So we get so focused on, oh, we're four and five. We're having a losing season, right? I never thought I would say this, but the Hawkeye fans today are a lot like the Israelites. They have a short-term memory. They can only remember what's happening right now. And yet vision leaks. And so in all these stories, God sends judge after judge. And finally, we get to the fifth judge named Gideon. And that's where we're going to pick up our story today. And so we're going to skip ahead a few chapters to Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 11. And we're in page 108 of the Bible. So God calls some of the most unlikely people to be judges. And so we read on the middle of page 108. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord had abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And so the first thing that we see is that Gideon has lost the vision as well. He was riding high. God's appointed me as a judge. Everything's going great. But then the vision starts to leak and he starts to doubt and wonder, God, why have you done this to us? But he's forgotten all this hardship that they're experiencing. They've brought on themselves through their sin and rebellion. And second of all, do you notice that God never answers the question? (laughs) Do you notice that? The longer you read the Bible, you'll notice that the God of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, whenever anybody ever asks them a question, they never answer it. (laughs) They always divert it. And is that because they don't want to answer it? Or is it because it's maybe the wrong question? God's trying to steer Gideon in a different way. And so God is God, and so he doesn't need to explain himself, and so he simply says, Gideon, go. Well, why? Because I said so. Because I'm sending you. And then, do you remember when God showed up to Moses in the burning bush and Moses started making all these excuses? It's almost eerily similar, the kind of excuses that Gideon starts to make. And so we read on. God says, am I not sending you? And then Gideon says, verse 15, "Uh, Pardon me, my lord, uh, Gideon replied. I don't know if that's how he talked. Maybe he was British. (laughs) Pardon me. Uh, But how can I save Israel? Listen to this. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Boo, hoo, hoo. Right? But look again at who God chooses. A guy from the weakest clan and the least in his family. It's almost like God is purposely stacking up the odds against Gideon so that there'll be no doubt that he desperately needs God. And I wonder if God does that sometimes for us. That he puts us in situations and he takes all the other things away that we could run to so that we'll finally realize when all we have left is God, will realize that all we ever really needed was God. And that's what he's doing for Gideon. 
Yet, we know that Gideon isn't the only one that's stacked up against overwhelming odds, that, that needs to, to buck the odds in his life, who's faced with a seemingly impossible road ahead. A few years ago, I ran into this really inspirational story of Team Hoyt, this father-son duo. And maybe you've heard of them. It's Ricky is the son and Dick is the father. And they're just an incredible, incredible team. And so today, as I was thinking about these overwhelming odds that Gideon is facing in, in facing the giant Midianite army, I thought about Team Hoyt and a father and his severely disabled son. And so as you watch this clip, take a look and maybe see how Gideon might be feeling. Let's take a look. I don't know if you caught the words of what the son, Rick, says, but he said, when my dad is pushing me, I don't feel like I have a disability because I know where my strength comes from. And I wonder if that's the very same lesson that God is trying to instill in Gideon and us. That maybe life isn't about trying to rely on our own strength, but trusting in the one that's behind us, pushing us through this life. The Apostle Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians I'm actually going to start boasting in my weaknesses because then God gets to be exceedingly strong for me. What a counterintuitive way of thinking about life. I'm going to actually celebrate how bad I am at things. I'm going to celebrate how weak and broken and vulnerable and messed up my life is because then I know that there's so much more room for God to work (laughs) because I don't have it all together. And that's what God is trying to instill in Gideon. But he hasn't quite got there yet. And at this point in the story, Gideon needs to learn a thing or two from Rick. Gideon still thinks that his success is all on his shoulders and how big his army is. And so Gideon says, okay, God, you've brought me this far. Now give me this big army so that I can go and defeat the Midianites. But instead, God stacks up the odds once again. Gideon starts with an army of 82,000 men. Think about a giant college football stadium, packed, okay? That's the army that Gideon starts with. And through a few key moves, God dwindles the army down to only 300. If we packed this gym, we could get 300 people in here, standing or only. Football stadium to this gym. That's the size difference, and God chops it down. If I'm Gideon, if you're Gideon, what are you thinking at this moment? God, what are you doing? The Midianites are the biggest, meanest, ugliest, deadliest army on the face of the earth, and you chopped down my numbers to 300. Do you know what you're doing? And God says, oh, I know exactly what I'm doing. Because I don't want you to ever think that if you win this battle, it had anything to do with you. And so I'm going to pull out all the stops, and I'm going to dwindle down your numbers. Gideon still had the wrong vision because vision leaks. He thought it was about human strength and the whole story was about God's strength all along. And vision leaks for us as well, not just for the Israelites, but I think vision leaks for us, especially when it comes to God's desire for us as a community, as, as, as a family, especially on what we're calling this Care and Prayer Sunday. Now, some of you might be wondering, John, We've almost been a church for five years now. Why are we just now talking about care and prayer? Did we not care before now? 
No, not really. We're just getting around. I'm just kidding, right? No, the reason that we're getting around to it now is because it's so important that over a year ago, we created this intentional team, this care and prayer team here at Hope Des Moines that some of you are a part of, to, to address specifically those things, but not to try to do everything themselves. But the main focus of this team, which I am so excited about, is to equip you, is to equip us to be family. Did you ever think about that? The people you're sitting next to today, you're, you're family with them. And the role of the care and prayer team all along has been to help us do life together. And if you look all throughout the New Testament, God gives us a very clear vision of what it means to be the church. Over and over, we hear these one another's. Everybody say one another. Love each other, serve each other, care for one another, pray for one another, mourn with one another, rejoice with one another, celebrate with one another, cry with one another, pray for one another, laugh with one another, over and over and over again. And then we start hearing verses like this from Galatians. In fact, let's read this together from Galatians uh, chapter 6. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And again, how about this from Romans chapter 12? Let's read this together. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And last but not least, we read this from James 5. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to come and pray over you. So what do you see here about the vision of what the church is supposed to be like? What do you see about God's desire for family? The vision is, or the the normal way of life in the church, for the early church, was to be so aware of your brokenness, was to be so aware of your struggles, that the last thing that you would think to do is isolate yourself. That the last thing that you would even think to do as a part of a church would be to try to do life alone. You never think about it. It would be unheard of in the early church to be a part of the church and yet not have anybody know you. It would be absolutely silly. And yet even for us as Christians today, vision leaks. And unfortunately, we don't always live that way. Instead, we think, oh, I'm strong. I can just make it through life on my own. And so it reminds me of this story. It's kind of prop day today, so you'll have to bear with me. This idea of being strong and weak, it reminds me of a story. A few years ago, Tiffany and I went to visit some friends in, uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, while we were out there, we saw, uh, we saw them and we saw their family, and they have two young kids. Uh, they have a four-year-old boy and about a two-year-old gal uh, at the time. Their names are Max and Maddie. Max is the boy and Maddie's. Uh, the gal. And before I go into the story, I just want to say, God bless you, parents. If you have ever had young children, God bless you, because I realize that going to Wendy's is an all-day event. Okay? It's an all-day event, right? There's a lot going on just to go to Wendy's, right? So there we are. We're in their living room, and Maddie's two, and she's this short, little, cute, pudgy girl, and she's about this tall. And you know, when you're two, you are so strong and so independent, and she is just waddling around because she can kind of walk by herself now, and she just owns the world. And she thinks she can do everything by herself. 
And so the two parents, and Tiffany and I, and her older brother, Max, are all standing around her, and we're watching her as she's trying to get her coat on by herself. And she's got the whole thing tangled up, and she's got her right arm and the left sleeve, and it's inside out, and she can't get it on. And because she can't really walk too well, and she, you, know, you kind of need your arms for balance, she's kind of stumbling all over the place like this, and she's like running into the couch and bouncing back, and she's got it over her head and around her back, and she can't figure it out. And she's getting so frustrated that she starts to cry. And she's so angry with herself, and she has, her cheeks are so red. And here's, here's all these adults and her older brother saying, we can help you. Can we help you, Maddie? And she's, every single time, she goes, no, no. And then somebody goes, can I help you? No. And it's all wrapped around her, and she's basically choking herself. Maddie, we really need to help you. No. And then she goes over here and pouts for a while. And then she waddles back and tries to figure it out again. No. Again and again and again. And we're all trying to help. And then out of nowhere, this cute little girl finally just puts her arms down like this and takes her coat And she waddles over to me, holds the coat up, looks me in the eyes, and goes, you help? Oh! And and I don't know what got into me, but I'm not a dad. I'm going to be a dad soon, but I'm not her dad. And I don't know what came over me, but almost just instinctively, I took the coat, And I kind of walked around her and I got down to her level so I could look her in the eyes. And I took the coat and I kind of came behind her, you know, like you do with kids because they're about this tall so their zipper starts at the floor, right? And so I come down and I take her little arms and I put them through the jacket and I wrap it around her and then I reach down and I zip it up for her. And then I turn it around and I get down to her level and I look her in the eyes and I say, Maddie better? And she says, yeah, better. Still with tears rolling down her cheeks and they're all red and puffy. And the reason I tell you that story is because I think a lot of us, when it comes to care and prayer in the church, we're a lot like little Maddie. And you have a whole community of people sitting around you today saying, we can help. We can care for you. We'd love to pray for you, but we don't know what's going on in your life. We'd love to serve you. We'd love to bring you a meal. We'd love to help bring you to church. We'd love to do any of those things for you. And a lot of us spend most of our lives going, no. No. Because I'm a strong, independent, grown-up adult, and I don't need any help from anyone. And yet you put that vision up to the vision of the New Testament church, And they don't align at all. Folks, we need each other. That's how we were created as the church. And it's almost like in that moment with my arms around Maddie, I got a glimpse of maybe an ounce of the love that our Father in heaven feels for us. That he would drop everything to help you. That he has given us the church to help each other. And we're surrounded by them every single week. And yet you remember those verses we, learned, we, we read a little bit earlier, vision leaks, and we don't always live our lives that way. We hear verses like, uh, uh, we hear verses like uh, carry one another, another's burdens. And yet 
our response is, well, I'll just suck it up and do it myself because I wouldn't want to burden anyone. You ever said that to yourself? Or we hear verses like, pray always, pray continually. And then we start believing the lie that, oh, you know, if, if you're a really strong, committed Christian, then you're so holy and so spiritual that you don't really need prayer requests because <laughs> you got everything figured out. And I hate to break it to you this morning, but you got issues. Every single one of us has issues. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, neighbor, you've got issues. Just remind him. You've got issues. Don't have too much fun with it. You've got issues. We all do. And what happens is that the one another's turn into the all aloners. And a lot of us live our lives that way. And this is one of the main reasons that one of the main goals of the care and prayer team is to equip life groups. I know a lot of you are in those, and I want to encourage you to jump in one. But to equip life groups to do life together. That's how we were created to live as the church. I love showing up at the hospital. And long before I ever got there to the hospital room, if somebody's struggling in our church, guess who's already there? Their life group. And they say, oh, Pastor John, we're so sorry. And I'm like, no, this is good. This is right. This is the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to go home because I only work on Sundays. I don't need to be here, right? (laughs) No, I stay. But... That's the way it's supposed to be. In fact, I love it not just in difficult times, but in good times. We have life groups in this church that have celebrated baptisms and graduations and weddings and anniversaries and, and, and new empl- finding new employment together. They do all of that. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I had somebody come up to me and say, John, it was so cool. I had this awesome event in my life, and my, the people from my church group actually showed up. And a part of me was like, yay. And a part of me was like, Why is that unordinary? Why is that not normal? And so my question for you this morning is, does anybody know you? Not just like your Facebook profile you, but does anybody know the real you? In fact, one of the most beautiful ways that I see you being the church is before and after worship. I don't know if you see it, but I walk around and I see a little huddle over there and a little huddle over there and a little huddle over there and they're all praying for each other. Because folks, we don't have a prayer booth in this church because your prayer booth is life. Anytime, anywhere, we can communicate with God on behalf of one another. And my dream and my hope is that when we say after worship, there'll be prayer partners up here, My dream is that one day there'll be so many of you that come up for prayer because you wouldn't even think of coming to worship and not getting prayed for, that that would just be ridiculous. That we'd have so many people coming up here for prayer that there'd be way more of you than there are prayer partners. And so we'd go, oh no, we need to train some new prayer partners. And so we train all of you to be prayer partners for each other. And then you know what happens to the prayer team? It becomes the entire church. (laughs) The entire church is the prayer team. And I have a feeling that that's how God would want it. And so I believe that God is simply asking us today, when will you stop and admit you can't do life alone? When will you admit that we're all Maddie? That we're all Ricky? We're not as strong as we think we are. And that was certainly the case for Gideon. And so we end the story today. Let's go back to the story of Gideon and wrap it up in chapter 7. And we're on page 111 of the story. For those of you that have the Abundant Life Bible, we're in uh, chapter 7, verse 16. 
So Gideon is preparing to attack thousands of Midianites with 300 men. And he trusts in God's promise no matter how weak he felt. And the story goes like this. Watch me, Gideon told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, which is in the middle of the night, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! While each man held his position around the camp and all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. You know, the more that we read God's story, we realize he never does the same thing twice. And this time, he chooses to use empty clay jars shattered into a thousand pieces. And I was reading this story, I kind of wondered, why of all things, why of all battle tactics would God say, hey, take some empty jars and smash them on the ground, and then you'll win? Brilliant military strategy, right? And I wonder, why would God use a thousand broken pieces to represent victory? And I wonder if it's because God wants to remind us today that he uses a bunch of broken, messed up people, just like you and I, to accomplish his his mission in this world. That's why he did it. And so my question for you today is, where has your vision about God leaked? Is it in your life group? Is it in worship? Is it in your walk with God? It is in how you view care and prayer amidst this community? Where has that vision leaked for you? And as one last reminder, I want to go back to the Team Hoyt story one more time. And as you watch this, ask God, what are you trying to say to me today about my relationship with you? Let's take a look. And I wonder if God is saying to each of us today, let me be that for you. You are not as strong as you think you are. So don't do life alone. And as we wrap up that Gideon story, we look at these thousand broken pieces all over the place. And so what I'd like you to do right now is reach under your seat and you're going to find one of those shattered pieces of Gideon's jars of clay. And I want this to hit home for you today. I want you to take this home with you. And so what we're going to do is, Kim's just going to play a little music, and what I want you to do is take that and one of the markers that's next to you on one of the chairs, and I want you to just ask God, what is an area of my life that I just refuse to give up control to you? What is an area of my life where maybe I've never prayed about an area of my life that I need to surrender, that I need to give up control, just like Gideon had to, and start trusting in God's strength rather than my own strength. And that is between you and God. That, that piece is for you to take home today and put wherever it is that you'll remember it, that it's always been about him, never been about you and what you can accomplish. So just take a few minutes between you and your father 
and just write down some phrases or some words or some ideas of something where you need to be weak so that God can be exceedingly strong.